Billy Joel's Leningrad tells the story of the American composer Billy Joel's travels to Leningrad and his established relationship with a Russian who grew up in Leningrad. Billy Joel's Leningrad is a vivid reminder that Russians are much like us and that we as Americans have no dispute with the citizens of Russia. The discord between Russia and the U.S. has to do with the Russian political leadership, not the citizens of Russia. In fact, there is common ground between the U.S. citizens and Russian citizens. The mainland Russian and the mainland U.S. news networks are telling only one side of the story. Today, the international historian Andrew Basevich discusses the history that led to the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and the grievances that led up to this horrific humanitarian disaster. Hello, friends. You are listening to Solutions to Violence. Carl Rattan will explain the source of justice and liberal fellowship of reconciliation sponsorship. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the third Thursday lunch. My name is Carl Rattan. I'm on the Sowers of Justice board. This third Thursday lunch is sponsored by the Affiliation and the Sowers of Justice. We uh, are two faith-based organizations that are committed to issues of social justice and to nonviolence. So we're very happy to have this program today to discuss the issues beyond the Ukraine war. So I will introduce to you Jim Johnson right now from the Fellowship Reconciliation, who will tell us about the radio streaming. We are Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. You are listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's program was produced by the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation and the Louisville Source of Justice as part of their third Thursday lunch series. Today's Solutions of Violence program was originally recorded April 21st. Solutions of Violence airs on WFMP 106.5 FM, Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream if you visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The third Thursday lunch that features Dr. Andrew Basevich will air on Solutions to Violence April 25th, 26th, and 27th. Our topic today is the Russian-Ukrainian crisis with Dr. Basevich. Andrew Basevich is Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University. He's also the founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statescraft and author of many books, including Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War. Dr. Andrew Basevich, welcome to Source of Justice and the Liberal Fellowship of Reconciliation's third Thursday lunch. Well, thank you for having me. As I told the uh, organizers of the event, my intention is to speak fairly briefly. I hope my remarks will basically prompt some comments on the part of those who have joined in and some questions so we can have something of a discussion about the Russo-Ukraine war and its uh, how we got here and perhaps also its pro- its prospects. I think that this this is n- not not every war invites an immediate moral judgment. Some are shrouded in ambiguity from the outset. That's not the case here. It seems to me that we have a clear aggressor. We have a a nation that has been attacked without any uh, justification 
and I think it's important to to acknowledge that Russia is the aggressor. Ukraine has every right to defend itself uh, and has been has been doing that for weeks now. All of that said, I don't think that that preliminary moral judgment is sufficient. I think that once this war ends and it will end and some time passes when we can begin to reflect on uh, what has occurred, I think that we will reach the judgment that this has been a needless war, an unnecessary war, perhaps justifiable from the point of view of Ukraine, but nonetheless needless shouldn't have happened. And I think that the reason it did have one contributing important, not to be overlooked, reason that it happened relates to the unwillingness of the West and of the United States to acknowledge Russia's uh, legitimate security interests. Again, the point here is not to take Putin off the hook, but the point is to make an argument that Russia does have a legitimate security interest and that the West and the United States, going back to the end of the Cold War at the end of the 1980s, has generally uh, refused to acknowledge those interests, in many respects has impeded uh, Russia's efforts to uh, secure itself. I won't go over through the chapter and verse of the events that relate to NATO expansion, for example, but nonetheless, I think if if we are going to understand how we got to the present moment, I think it is important to acknowledge that the West, and in particular the United States, has mishandled this entire situation and in, in ways that have helped to lead to the, to the war that is, that is ongoing. Now, in the weeks leading up to hostilities, remember there were several weeks when we were just reading daily press reports about how Russian forces were mustering in proximity to Ukraine, how they were engaged in various military exercises. And and clearly, uh, those exercises were intended to intimidate Ukraine, and I think probably more broadly intended to intimidate NATO, bringing about some sort of agreement that would avert avert the need for hostilities. I will acknowledge that during that period of time, I was on the record as saying that I thought it was unlikely uh, that President Putin would would in fact uh, pull the trigger and invade Ukraine. And I thought that, not because I think uh, Putin is a good guy, he's anything but a good guy, but uh, it seemed to me that his prior record of behavior as president of Russia was informed by a certain level of prudence and realism. And it seemed to me that a reckless act such as initiating a war by invading Ukraine would have been out of character. Well, I sure got that wrong. I wasn't the only one who got that wrong, but I certainly got it wrong. And I think one of the the questions we find ourselves needing to wrestle with is what does Putin's decision to invade Ukraine tell us about Putin himself or Putin as the president of of what is in fact a a great power. He has undertaken enormous risk. The risk is not working out favorably uh, from from his his point of view. Why did he do that? And of course, we, we, we don't know, we can't know, we really can't reach a conclusion. There are those who speculate that 
that Putin is motivated by what we might, might call psychological considerations, uh, that going back to the end of the Cold War and the co collapse of, uh, of the Soviet Union, that he, uh, he still feels a strong sense of humiliation at the way the Cold War ended and, and at the way his homeland, the Soviet Union, uh, collapsed, and, and that therefore he is embarked upon an emotionally informed effort to, to try to recover what was lost back in 1989. Maybe so. The, the other alternative, I think, is to believe that there is a strategic rationale. Uh, I see somebody's put in the chat box, Russia is not a great power. Let's, let's talk about that. that. That there is a strategic rationale that he is intending to achieve with force what he could not achieve through diplomacy. That is to say, to, to create a, a buffer, a security buffer, as a, as a protection for Russian national security, and that the way to do that is to ensure that Ukraine remains within the, uh, the Russian sphere of influence. I must admit, I find that, I don't want to say a more persuasive, but uh, a more logical explanation, because it does seem to me to relate to what we could argue would be a rational calculus on uh, Putin's part. Whereas the notion of we're going to re restore Russian great greatness from the days of the Soviet Union strikes me as utterly irrational and is therefore troubling. But in this confusing moment, I think one of the things worth thinking about, talking about, uh, wrestling with is what exactly motivates M Mr. Putin. The second point I would make is that in, in terms of surprises, I, I said I was surprised by, that the war happened in the first place. I think many of us have been surprised by the tenacity of Ukrainian resistance, complemented by the effectiveness of President Zelensky's uh, leadership. When the war began, there were you know, newspaper columnists who were smarter than I am, who were sort of mocking Zelensky as a, you know, former TV comedian who po couldn't possibly turn out to be an effective leader. He's, he, he's probably at the present moment, uh, the most admired man in the world uh, outside of, of Russia itself, because his, his uh, performance has been astonishing, not simply in terms of uh, inspirational, but it seems to me also in terms of, of shrewdness. You know, he, he knows how to speak to a particular audience effectively. So, so we, we have to credit Zelensky, but you know, certainly as much we have to credit the, the astonishing willingness of the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian soldiers to, to fight. Now they're fighting for their country. Uh, it, it appears that they're fighting for a country that they care a lot about. But nonetheless, the, the capacity of the Ukrainians to mount an effective resistance is, uh, has been another big surprise. I think the third surprise, and it relates to the second one, has been the really extraordinary incompetence of the Russian military, uh, which has happened in multiple dimensions. Clearly, intelligence failures, clearly, abysmally defective campaign planning, certainly ineffective senior leadership, uh, which, which may, may now uh, demonstrate capacity to learn and adapt and adjust, but up till now uh, has not demonstrated any particular capacity to learn. 
very serious questions about the motivation and discipline of Russian uh, frontline troops. Horrible, really horrible mistakes in the realm of logistics. Uh, you know, the inability even to provide fuel for Russian uh, armored forces, all do not speak well uh, for the Russian military, which supposedly had undergone a, a very costly modernization project over the previous couple of decades. And then, of course, kind of topping off everything else is the unnecessary brutality that is, seems to be coming more prominent the longer the campaign goes along with the targeting of non-combatants, the ruthless destruction of civilian infrastructure that in some respects you could say is characteristic of the Russian way of war. If we think about the Afghanistan campaign of the 1980s, or if we think about fighting on the Eastern Front uh, of the, uh, during World War II. So there's a, there's a history here, but nonetheless, it is really striking in the 21st century at the brutality and carelessness of the way the Russian military has behaved. Let me offer some tentative conclusions. They have to be tentative because, of course, the war is still going on. Conclusion number one, I think, is that it's the striking thing is how long it has gone on. I think there were expectations early on that this would be another six-day war or something like that, that the uh, that the Russian army would, would win quickly, would march on Kiev, and things would be done in a matter of, of days. That has not happened, obviously. And now we find ourselves asking the question, well, how much longer? How much longer can this war continue? How much longer will it continue? And of course, the answer is we have no idea. It is striking to me, you know, just as a guy who reads the papers, I don't have any inside knowledge, it's striking to me how, how little apparent diplomatic effort is, is ongoing. Now, there could be a lot going on behind the scenes uh, that we are, we are not aware of. But whereas during the first two weeks of the war, there seemed to be ambitious, energetic efforts by third parties to bring about negotiations leading to a ceasefire or leading to an armistice, at the present moment, uh, there doesn't seem to be much talking going on at all, and that seems to suggest that that we may be in for for a much uh, much larger, excuse me, much longer war. This is particularly the case if U.S. and uh, and NATO and other allies continue to provide the wherewithal to sustain uh, Ukrainian forces. And again, just going by what we read in the papers, that support continues to ramp up. And, and seems to be involving heavier weapons, uh, more lethal weapons than was the case during the first few weeks of the war. Whether those heavier weapons will make a decisive uh, outcome, I wouldn't even venture to guess, but they do demonstrate a willingness on the part of the U.S. and its allies to, to begin to walk up to, a, to a, an invisible red line, the, the red line beyond which outside support for Ukraine will be considered to be unacceptable by the Russians. That, that line is out there somewhere. We don't know what it is. Certainly at this point, Putin uh, engages in a certain amount of bluffing. Recall the, the ICBM event of yesterday or the day before. But I wouldn't assume that it's all bluff. Uh, and there may well be some point beyond which 
the Russians are going to retaliate, not simply against Ukraine, but against NATO and against the U.S. And, and that's when things really, really uh, become uh, dangerous. And, and I'm, I'm alluding here, of course, to the possibility of, of some kind of nuclear weapons use in some format. Don't know, you know, big weapon, small weapon, a demonstration actually targeting. But I think any nuclear weapons use uh, would violate a longstanding taboo against using nuclear weapons, and that would be unbelievably dangerous uh, for, the, for the entire planet. Another tentative conclusion, I think, and again, we can only go by what we, you know, sort of read in the New York Times, is that uh, Putin's hold on power seems to be quite, quite uh, firm. He's been in power for, what, 20 years now? He's an old KGB guy. He appears to have very tight control over the internal security forces of Russia. It's always possible uh, that there could be some attempt by uh, forces within Russia to remove him. You know, let's, re let's recall, I don't know if it's relevant, but let's recall the assassination attempt that targeted uh, Hitler in, I think it was July of 1944. Something like that could happen. Of course, in July 1944, the assassination attempt failed, uh, and therefore Hitler continued in power. So, totally unpredictable. It, it would be wonderful if there would be some neat and tidy way for him to be removed from the scene, because we can at least speculate uh, that a successor would potentially be more amenable to some kind of negotiations uh, to bring this thing to an end. But that's just speculation. For now, it appears that Putin is very much uh, in, in control. I think one of the biggest tentative conclusions that I have reached, however, is that the course of the conflict demonstrates that Russia poses no real threat to European uh, security. You know, if you, if you can't conquer Ukraine, how the heck are you going to conquer Germany? How the heck are you going to march on the English Channel? I think this is very relevant uh, because, I mean, in in, in, the camp, in the camp where I am, the U.S. commitment to European security has become redundant, meaning the, the, the commitment going back to 1949 and the creation of NATO is something that we can now, we should have declared mission accomplished because there are more important things to worry about. My number one would be climate change. But there are other security concerns beyond climate change that require a heck of a lot more focus uh, than the United States has been uh, giving. So for me, one of the conclusions to be drawn from the Ukraine war uh, is that Russia really is not that big of a problem. Now, unfortunately, of course, the conclusion that is going to be drawn in all likelihood is that Russian aggression demonstrates the imperative of the United States not only staying in NATO, but redoubling its commitment to NATO. Now, we had substantially drawn down the U.S. military presence in Europe uh, since the Cold War ended in 1989. And I think it is a safe bet that as a consequence of this war, we are going to be committing more U.S. troops to Europe, and they're probably going to stay there for a long time. And the justification is going to be uh, the Ukraine war. Again, I think if you look at, the, at what has occurred in this war, the conclusion you would reach would be, we don't need to be in Europe. Not, that's not an argument for a retreat to so-called isolationism. 
it's an argument that we got more important things to do than to defend Europe when Europe is fully capable of defending itself should the European cho Europeans choose uh, to do so. Now, there's a couple more things and then I'll conclude and we can go ahead and, and talk. A few concerns. The term genocide is now being very freely used to describe Russia's behavior. I think it's totally inappropriate. You know, call it brutality, cite the fact that they are killing civilians in large numbers, but there, there are many definitions of genocide that you can find in dictionaries and, and online. I looked up one yesterday and it was the deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. The implication being that it's an effort ex at extermination. That's not what's happening. And, and my objection here is that if we misuse terms, then we, we water them down. They lose their meaning. And so there's plenty of reason uh, to condemn Russian aggression and Russian behavior, conduct, in the course of this war. Uh, but it seems to me that it's a mistake for us to charge Russia with genocide because genocide is not happening, at, le at least in Ukraine. There's a lot of talk now about the desirability of regime change. And a minute ago, I alluded to, wouldn't it be wonderful if somehow Putin was magically removed from the scene? And if, as a consequence, we could identify interlocutors who would be somewhat more amenable to serious negotiations. Well, that would be nice. On the other hand, uh, we've, we've tried regime change as a solution to problems. Let's remember back to 2003. All we needed to do was to overthrow Saddam Hussein and everything was going to be good because we were then going to you know, remake Iraq as a liberal democracy and democracy would spread throughout the region and, and peace would break out. That's not exactly what happened. And Iraq is not the only example of expectations of regime change that end up producing results quite contrary to what the architects of a war imagine. So again, love to see Putin gone. Don't think it makes sense. I don't think it's prudent for the United States as a matter of policy to have regime change be one of the objectives that uh, justify our participation in this war. I already alluded to the problem of nuclear weapons use. I'll, I'll skip over that. I guess my last point would be, as a consequence of the war, Russia has become a pariah. For all practical purposes, it's been forcibly ejected from the international community. I mean, what did I, what did I read today about the you know, Russians can't participate in a tennis tournament or something like that? I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it's uh, sort of symbolic, but it's not symbolic. Certainly the economic isolation of Russia is not symbolic and has enormous consequences for Russians and also for the rest of us because it's creating uh, a lot of damage in the international economy. The point, though, is even if there is a justification for the sanctions imposed on Russia, for the punishments imposed on Russia, when this war ends, and it will end, we're going to have to think real hard about how to, to make, something, make Russia something other than a pariah, because it's going to continue to be a big state, an important nation, and to permanently exclude or isolate it will almost inevitably, I think, 
end up having negative consequences. When the war ends, we're going to need real peace. Real peace is going to be hard to come by. But I, I hope that there are smart people in Washington and other uh, capitals around the world who are thinking about how to undo Russia's pariah status, pariah status and give us some kind of a relationship with Russia uh, that can be uh, some, some approximation of, of peaceful. So I will stop there and I look forward to uh, questions and comments. Dr. Basevich, thank you very much for that very penetrating analysis and for getting, giving us kind of the scenario. We'll begin to take questions now. I would invite people if they have questions to put them in the chat and I will forward them on to Dr. Basevich. That is to say, I will ask him the questions. Uh, let me begin with a question uh, that I'm curious about. And that has to do with the role of the United States and the West now, now that we're in this conflict. Uh, you, as you said, uh, the West is really ramping up both weapons and sanctions. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you think that's a helpful strategy. Should the United States continue to provide these very uh, powerful, expensive, and dangerous weapons to Russia? And of course, they could fall into the wrong hands. And also, if we should, what is the limit of that? I think we should continue to support uh, Ukraine militarily with an eye toward enabling Ukraine to defend itself. We're not trying to assist Ukraine to launch counteroffensives uh, into, into Russia. So I think, I, you know, it, it, you can get into very complicated uh, discussions here, you know, is a, is a certain kind of weapon a defensive weapon or is it an offensive weapon? Of course, the answer is any weapon can be used offensively or defensively. But nonetheless, I think the, the uh, and I would hope again, uh, that there are discussions between NATO and the Ukrainian government about aims that would solicit agreement from the Ukrainians that their aim is to defend the territorial integrity of their, of their country, not to embark upon some kind of offensive re revenge operation. But, but whether, I don't know whether that's happening, but it seems to me that's kind of the key distinction. When we, people make way, 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 way too much of comparisons uh, you know, with, with World War II, but when, when we aligned ourselves with Great Britain, our, our initial pre-Pearl Harbor, our, our purpose was to enable the Brits to defend their island, to, to fend off the possibility of the Third Reich invading Great Britain. After Pearl Harbor, after we became party to the war, then our aims shifted to something more than simply defensive. And I think, you know, with, with some justification back in 1942 and 1943. Uh, but I don't think that that's where we are now. So I think the, uh, to me, the distinction is, yes, yes, uh, President Zelensky, we will help you defend yourself. No, we will not help you embark upon any kind of retaliatory or offensive operations. Thank you. So here's a question. I know you've addressed somewhat the issue of strategic nuclear weapons and biological weapons, but do you think there's a, that this is a real danger? And if so, what can we do to mitigate against it? Yeah, well, you know, and here's where we kind of get into this question of, of Putin's motivation. You know, is he a rational actor or, or is he somebody who has, you know, gone off his nut? 
to my mind, if he's a rational actor, uh, then the, the, the risk of nuclear weapons use is probably relatively small if we don't provoke him. And that's again where the, the issue of how much support and of what kind we provide uh, Ukraine has to become part of the, of, of the conversation. But if he's gone off his rocker, then our ability to influence his thinking may, may be very limited. You know, when I read the press, there's a lot of sort of chit chat about all that right now. I don't think anybody has a capacity to judge uh, Putin's mindset, a temper, who isn't in the Kremlin and meeting routinely with him. So this is a this is a matter of of great uncertainty. I must admit that I I prefer to err on the side of acting in ways that will reduce the possibility of nuclear weapons use. I think the increasing as the longer the war goes on, the more the louder voices become in sort of the American media sphere arguing for punishing Russia, doing whatever we can to punish Putin, punish Russia. I think strategically, that's not a particularly wise course of action. And I think worse, that's the kind of thinking that could inadvertently push Putin into, who's already demonstrated a capacity for recklessness, to push him into even greater recklessness, which could involve nuclear weapons use. I, I, you know, that's pretty close to the ultimate disaster. Uh, and we need to do whatever we can to prevent that from happening. We meaning the government of the United States. Let me just ask the follow up question about that. So with uh, Putin, uh, with uh, uh, Biden's use of genocide, is he really, is he, do you think he's painting Putin into a corner that makes him more aggressive and uh, uh, increases the volatility of the situation? You know, you tell me, if these so-called, you know, slips of, of, you know, slip of the tongue, you tell me if they're really a slip of the tongue or whether they're part of a larger sort of communication strategy. I know I don't know. I would say that some of the things that President Biden has said are at a minimum imprudent. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, when he, when he says something like that, you know, when he says, this guy's gotta go, or when he talks about genocide, when he talks about war crimes, uh, to what degree is our president saying that because of policy considerations? To what degree is he saying that when speaking to a domestic political audience? I don't want to sound too cynical, but I mean, we've got the midterm elections that are now right around the corner. The president's poll numbers are terrible. As far as I can tell, the American public is absorbed by uh, issues such as inflation, maybe inflation more than any other single uh, matter, because that's what that's what hurts ordinary ordinary Amer Americans on a day to day basis. And it's not again, I don't want to be too cynical, but it's, it's, it's not difficult to imagine that Biden's got some policy advisors, I should say political advisors who want to distract attention from these domestic challenges. And that one way to do that 
is to portray Putin as a, as an evildoer. I think that kind of tactic is ill-advised, uh, but it's we can at least speculate that that may be one of the things that's in the mix here. Dr. Basevich, we have a question about NATO and um, has NATO been considered to be admitted, has Russia ever been considered to be admitted to NATO in the past? Would you say a little bit about that and about yeah. NATO and Russia's uh, uh, relationship? Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about it, but so you know, take some of this with a grain of salt. In the immediate wake of the fall of the Berlin Wall, there, there was talk and there was some effort made toward establishing a non-hostile relationship between NATO and the then Soviet Union. I mean, remember the Soviet Union didn't collapse until what, December of 91, I think it was. And I think the effort then continued after the Soviet Union was gone and Russia was the successor state. There may have been some vague notions of inviting Russia, USSR slash Russia uh, to, to join NATO. I don't think that was ever serious. There was a more serious effort undertaken, I think under the umbrella of something called Partnership for Peace, that, that aimed to formulate a relationship between NATO and Russia that would not be hostile. I think I'm remembering correctly. For example, uh, there was a sort of a, a liaison officer for, for the Russian army that was opened in in Mons, Belgium, the headquarters of NATO. So there were efforts made to try to make sure that the post-Cold War relationship with between NATO and Russia would be cordial. And, and that didn't get very far. Why didn't it get very far? Well, again, there's a, there's a story here. And I think, for example, part of the story has to do with uh, the, 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 the Balkan Wars of the early 1990s. Kosovo, I think, would be a good example. When NATO, led by the United States, intervened in the Kosovo War on behalf of Kosovo, a breakaway province, on behalf of Kosovo against Serbia, we went to war against Serbia, I think it was a 78-day air campaign, creating the conditions leading to Kosovo becoming an independent nation, I would say parenthetically, despite the fact that the so-called Kosovo Liberation Army was listed as a terrorist organization by the State Department. When we did that, we did that in the face of so Russian, so I said so, yeah, Russian, uh, Russian objections. Because the Russians believe that they have uh, a responsibility toward uh, Slavic peoples, uh, partly partly rooted in religious identity, and they didn't cotton to the fact uh, that the Americans and the and the European allies were intervening in a war where the Russians felt they had a proprietary interest. Let me emphasize: that doesn't mean that that the Russians have some justification for invading. Uh, Ukraine in 2022. All it, all it, it suggests is that there is a context, there's a history, and the history is one in which early efforts, 
whether sincere or not, I don't know, early efforts to try to formulate a relationship between NATO and Russia that would be not hostile. Those efforts didn't pan out. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, here's a uh, question from Carolyn King. I have read several articles about Putin's motive being a holy war. He has strong support of the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill. He rejects Western progressive ways, especially toward LGBTQ people. Do you think there's any validity to that about this having some uh, religious undertones? I think that, uh, you know, these are, these are fabulous questions. And actually, my, the honest answer to these questions is, how the heck do I know? <laughs> uh, I don't think that we have any evidence, credible evidence, that Putin himself is a believer or a particularly religious person. I think there's bountiful evidence that he's a Russian nationalist. And I think that there's considerable evidence that he, he sees the, the Russian Orthodox Church as a means to express, fortify, reinforce his commitment to Russian nationalism with the expectation that that's going to, you know, win points among, among ordinary Russians. That's kind of a way of saying that it's, it's entirely cynical, and it probably is. Although I would, I would, I would hasten to say that I, I don't think Putin is the only politician on the face of the earth that cynically uses religion uh, for his own uh, purposes. Matter of fact, it even happens in our country from time to time. I, I will not cite specific examples, but, but I could. Thank you. And I will remind people to put questions in the chat or let me know if you'd like me to call on you. How truthful are reports that there is a small yet influential group of militarily armed white supremacists that have influence on President Zelensky's willingness to pursue dialogue with Putin and in eventual peace? I don't know. I mean, we do know. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I believe we can say we know this, uh, that there are elements of the Ukrainian military that that probably do deserve to be called fascists. That's another term like genocide that gets thrown around, I think, uh, rather recklessly. Uh, but yeah, there are, there's, a, there are, there's a, what's it called, the Azov Battalion? That is a far right wing uh, entity, Ukrainian nationalist, uh, fighting valiantly uh, on, on behalf of, of Ukraine but not adhering to any concept of liberal democratic values that, that most of us would, uh, would, would, would recognize. Apparently, they're very effective fighters. Next question. Would Ukraine taking action to reclaim the Donbass or Crimea be, in your opinion, a new offense measure attack on Russia or still yeah. defensive? No, I think, I think uh, again, if... if I don't know what President Zelensky's priorities are. I would hope that his number one priority is to bring about the cessation of hostilities without undue additional damage to his country and to his fellow citizens. And I think if that is his goal, he needs to recognize that for all practical purposes, the, 
the Donbass is is lost. May may not be lost in the sense that a peace agreement will see the Donbass becoming incorporated uh, into Russia, but I think that the notion that the Donbass is going to be fully restored uh, to Ukrainian control is probably a war aim that would be very difficult to achieve and would probably trying to achieve it would end up prolonging hostilities for a a, a real long time. I, I just don't think that that's a, that would be prudent. But again, I don't pretend to know what President Zelensky thinks. It's it just to uh, add to that, uh, it seems a little ironic now that it so- uh, sounds like Zelensky is willing to cede that, uh, to give up uh, the, hit, the claim of NATO uh, uh, inclusion and even it, it, some of what he says sounds like he's willing to cede some territory. Am I hearing that right, or do you have any thoughts about that? That's the way I hear it, too. And again, this, this goes back to the sad irony that had he and we uh, been willing to consider that possibility before the war started, maybe the war could have been avoided. Uh, But before hostilities began, remember the rhetoric coming out of Washington, which was, you know, nobody's going to tell us who can join NATO, who can't. That's a that's a sovereign decision. And we weren't willing to we, the United States, we were willing to budge on that. We were we were not willing. Remember the secretary of the state, I think it was sort of saying, well, we don't we don't do spheres of influence. That's that's 19th century stuff. That's baloney. We do spheres of influence. We, we call our sphere of influence the Western Hemisphere. And we don't tolerate uh, hostile forces uh, in the Western Hemisphere. And <laughs> you ask yourself if the Chinese, <laughs> you know, if the Chinese negotiate an agreement with Venezuela to establish a Chinese naval base in Venezuela, what would be the response of the United States of America? Well, you know what the response would be. It would be this is totally unacceptable and cannot happen. And we would, we would, people would start remembering the Monroe Doctrine, <laughs> which, which has been forgotten now ever since the Cuban Missile Crisis, but we would discover the Monroe Doctrine. So spheres of influence are part of international politics. And I think there are occasions when in the interest of stability, international stability, there is merit to recognizing the ex- existence of spheres of influence. And, and, and U.S. statesmen should not get on a high horse about you know, things that we don't accept or things we don't believe in. There's also a question from Jim Johnson. So Jim, would you like to ask your question? Yeah, thank you. At the beginning of this conflict, Putin and, and the Russians asked for several grievances. They explained those grievances and many historians like your colleague, Anatole Levin, Chris Hedges, others agreed that those grievances proclaimed by Putin and the Russians were quite reasonable. They asked that after 11 countries that had been part of the Soviet sphere joined NATO, gave the United States great economic and, and military power in Europe. He asked that those that Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO right on the Russian border. He asked that U.S. military bases 
throughout Europe that has surrounded Russia for decades be pulled back. He asked some of the nuclear missiles, uh, U.S. nuclear missiles that have been in NATO countries for decades, be disarmed and, and pulled back. None of those grievances were acceptable by Joe Biden and the American NATO allies. They are no longer mentioned at all by Biden or the American U.S. Uh, press. The mainline press does not mention those grievances at all. So I wonder why your article is the confrontation over Ukraine, Joe Biden's wag the dog moment, published in The Nation, 2022, February 16th. You state American exceptionalism assumes a Manichaean world in which good is pitted against evil with our side assuming to be uh, embodied. You, 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 you probably want to ask your question. So is that part of the reason American exceptionalism, which has been used as justification for war here in America for over a century, part of the reason why we're no longer talking about those, not mainline news, not Joe Biden, those grievances that have been propagated by Putin. Yeah, I would say no. I would say no, uh, that the reason you're raising a very good point, that prior to the onset of hostilities, there may have been a basis for, let's call it compromise, give and take, that would have satisfied, arguably, potentially, again, I don't read Putin's mind, could have satisfied certain Russian demands, and therefore avoided hostilities. At that point, the Biden administration was not interested in negotiating. Now, do claims related to American exceptionalism inform that unwillingness to negotiate? I would say possibly so, at least sort of in the background. But more to the point, once hostilities began, let's be more blunt about it, once Russia invaded Ukraine illegally and brutally, then I think the, any willingness on the part of the Biden administration or more broadly American political elites evaporated. Instead, what, what, what kicked in, in my opinion, was a deep-seated Russophobia that goes back to the Cold War, arguably goes back to the Bolshevik Revolution, and therefore posed uh, obstacles, even to having a conversation with the Russians about, well, maybe we got, maybe, maybe if we, we did this, you could do that. So some of that may be related to American exceptionalism, but I think probably more of it relates to how the initiation of hostilities, all oh, the murder, the damage, the brutality, has, has changed the moment in ways that conversations that before the war might have been possible now are sort of impossible. Here's a final question, Dr. Basevich, which we only have a couple minutes for, but the question is, do you agree or disagree? Geopolitics seems to always trump humanitarian 
moral and even psychological factors? Well, I don't know if I'd say always because somebody could come up with an example of when it didn't. But I mean, yeah, more often than not, uh, you know, more more often than not, uh, national security concerns, concerns related to the the well being of a country, economic well being, uh, those tend to eclipse uh, moral considerations. I'm not saying they should. I'm just saying I think that that describes the way the world works. Well, Dr. Basevich, thank you very, very much for this uh, very helpful, illuminating analysis. It's, I think it's, uh, it's certainly given me a deeper understanding of the issues, and I, I trust it has for the rest of our audience. I'll turn it over now to Beverly Marmion, who has a few last words. Today's program about Ukraine Russia and the United States is our last program of the season. We won't resume again until September, September 15th to be exact, which is the third Thursday. We don't yet know whether we're going to be gathering together at Hotel Louisville over lunch or whether we're going to be Zooming between ourselves, but whichever way we will return. I wanna thank our audience for your loyalty and your interest in our programs across the last year, plus a few months in our decision to Zoom. Uh, and I wanna thank our speakers and you in particular, Dr. Basevich, because you're with us right now for sharing your knowledge, your passions, indeed your heartaches at some points in the subjects we've chosen to cover and you've agreed to speak to us. So on that note, I'll say bye-bye to everybody and, and we'll be back together in September. Thanks so much. Folks, we're out of time. We want to thank our keynote speaker, Dr. Andrew Basevich, for leading our discussion here today. We want to thank the Lowell Fellowship for Reconciliation and Source of Justice for sponsoring our third Thursday lunch event. We want to thank our radio audience for listening in. Hope you have enjoyed our discussion concerning the Russian-Ukrainian crisis. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choose Listen Live Now. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated April 26th and 27th. This program featuring Andrew Basibic will be placed in our archives April 27th. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org and choose Program Archives and then scroll down to the Solutions of Violence program that features Andrew Basevich and the Third Thursday Lunch. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Dr. Basevich, you can reach us with the following email address, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson with Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thanks for listening.